Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen, and I have been really looking forward to today's episode. If you listen to a podcast like ours, or if you're just a terminally online person like me, you're probably familiar with the phrase, daddy issues. It's a phrase that's generally targeted at women, particularly younger women, but it can describe anyone whose adult relationships, and maybe most importantly, their romantic ones, are affected by the experiences they had with their father figure growing up. And today we're going to be talking about what daddy issues are, where they come from, how we can maybe understand them in a more accurate or less judgmental way, and what we can do about them. So it's probably particularly appropriate that I'm joined for today's episode by my father, Dr. Rick Hansen. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm good. And I suddenly am realizing, Forrest, that we should do a whole episode on sunny issues. Well, I, I have to start by asking you, Dad, a very important question. This is this is a question for the culture, because I know that people are wondering this. Do you know what a daddy is? <laughs> a daddy? <laughs> well, <laughs> like not in the parental framework. <laughs> I, I have an internal and I think entirely appropriate alarm system about gendered language, period, and being careful. But if I follow you, I, I've heard people <laughs> Talk a little bit about issues with their father. I'm assuming we're not in the frame of sugar daddies. <laughs> no, but you're close. You're, or, you're getting closer. You're getting warmer and warmer. I am kind of cool occasionally. I don't know. <laughs> so just just for you, Dad, a, a daddy in that kind of expression is generally like a sexy older man is what it's generally used to refer to. Oh, but it can really refer to anybody who has what's sometimes known as daddy energy. Huh. Like Elizabeth is a woman, but most people would refer to her as having daddy energy. This is my partner, Elizabeth, by the way, for people who might not be familiar. But this is a whole other episode that we're starting to get into here. I, I want to avoid this one. We're, we're going to moonwalk away from this topic as rapidly as possible. <laughs> Wait, well, certain, there's, there's certain kind of terms and subcultures <laughs> that actually I'm really glad Mm -hmm. I know nothing, nothing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's good. Second, how could someone like Elizabeth have daddy energy? We're post the we're post gender binary over here, Dad. We're really opening it up these days, for starters, in a really it's overdue, true, yeah, truthfully, like positive yeah. and wonderful way. So even though Elizabeth is a woman, she has a vibe and energy that's more authoritative, more dominant, more comes into a room, really knows what she wants, knows how to get it. All of that. Whereas even though I'm a guy, a lot of people, aka friends of mine, you know who you are, have referred to me as having more mommy energy because I tend to be softer, more nurturing, more like ending my phrases with a question mark rather than a period. Does that all make sense? Yes. And I'm <laughs> glad that we have how... <laughs> managed to walk on the thin ice without cracking too far through yet. Okay. You're just you're, you're so desperate to exit this part of the conversation. I absolutely love that. It's I great. I'm okay with it, but see this face? <laughs> you know, this face has sank I, a thousand ships. I am so glad that we took this little detour. But okay, anyways, returning to daddy issues. Uh, can I start just by asking you, Dad, like what are daddy issues? How do you think about that? First, I don't, I guess because it's pejorative, even in the framing mm, to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's problematic just even in the framing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To kind of broaden it out, we grow up with caregivers 
Some of them are not identified in terms of a particular gender. All that's said, we grow up with our caregivers and we form scripts or patterns of relating with our caregivers, really understandably. This is mm-hmm. attachment theory 101. This is social psychology 102. And then later in life, we tend to keep enacting those patterns of thinking, feeling, and acting. Very important. They're patterns of thinking and feeling, not just acting, with similar sorts of people in our adulthood. And those patterns can be fairly complex. They can be useful. They can be problematic. And we can have a learning curve about them, or we cannot. And so that's kind of the general territory. In that territory, I think it's certainly true that many, many people have issues into adulthood psychologically that circle a lot around painful experiences or the absence of positive experiences with their father that are really consequential. And a key point here is that what really matters is how it landed inside, less what happened. Mm -hmm. I think it's an aspect of mental health to be able to move back and forth between the objective and the subjective including with regard to your own childhood. Like I look at my childhood, the subjective for me was a lot of unhappiness with my parents growing up. I now am more and more clear objectively that they were well-intended, loving and decent, and yet partly because of my own sensitivities, my own introversion, it landed on me pretty hard. So the point being that it's useful to be both objective about your childhood while also honoring and compassionate for Mm. how it landed on you. To summarize a little bit of what you just said, uh, maybe a a less pejorative way to think of daddy issues is, as you said, as a form of attachment wounding. And it tends to come about when a person's relationship with their primary attachment figure, in this case, a father, was like complicated or non-existent or difficult or idealized. There are a lot of different ways that something can be kind of unhealthy. And because there are a lot of different ways that something can be kind of unhealthy, it's really hard to give a blanket expression of what daddy issues look like because as you're saying, these scripts emerge, right, based off of these less than perfectly healthy relationships that can then color our later in life relationships. And importantly, often are romantic ones for a variety of reasons that we might talk about a little bit later. But dad, getting into that, is there a common presentation that this family of issues have? Like, what are, what's some of the symptomology that tends to appear for people if they have this kind of attachment wounding? It's really impossible to separate parenting from community and culture. Mm. Because very often, for example, you have a fairly classic situation, and a lot of research shows that gender typing and polarization tends to intensify certainly in heterosexual couples, after the kids come along. Women tend to move more into the caregiving role. Fathers tend to move more into the providing role. So suddenly now you've started to intensify those differences, those asymmetries. And then there become related expectations and standards depending Mm -hmm. on the role, right? And so if you have, let's say, a father in America in the 21st century has a child There are a lot of cultural norms that are about that father intensifying being a provider. So Mm. now the father's working longer hours, the father's carrying those stresses. Meanwhile, the mother tends to culturally be drawn more into that caregiving role. And so she tends to get more involved with the younger child. 
less interested in his long stories about what the day was like at work. He feels maybe increasingly let down. She also feels like he's disengaged from family life. Mm. So all these things are in the mix. And so then you have a father who is enacting what he thinks he's supposed to do. He's a more emotionally engaged dad than his dad was. So he's definitely beating that standard. And yet his partner is feeling like he's not available to her. He's not very involved in the emotional life of the children. And then as they grow up, they'll talk about a dad who is absent. Mm, and yet mm. there's a lot of pressure on that dad to do the kind of things that make him absent. And I'm not trying to create excuses for anybody. I'm just, I'm just situating. I'm just situating parenting and family life in its cultural milieu. So that's great context for how these issues could emerge or like the social or cultural situation that people find themselves in for this kind of stuff. Would you mind sharing a little bit about what like attachment wounding issues look like for a person in practice? So let's say yeah. that there is a child who grows up inside of that context and turns 16, turns 18, turns 22. They're going out into the world. They're forming new relationships with different kinds of people. And what are some of the symptoms that could arise for them based off of those circumstances that they experienced with their dad when they were younger? Yeah. And thanks for bringing me into the particular case. But the situationness yeah. of it is really, it's important mm -hmm. to get. Okay. So what's optimal? What's ideal? What's normal in the sense of the biological template? A lot of, I think of it as both loving and skillful parenting. Let's suppose that this girl has interactions with her father that are mostly characterized by him being emotionally available, skillfully responsive, committed to her well-being, and emotionally regulated himself. And then life goes on. Things happen. Maybe they're behavior problems. Maybe they're misunderstandings. But there's enough of an underlying safety net of relational health that issues can be repaired. And that's the fundamental question can problems be repaired? And this also has to do with the role of the other parent who is, let's say, reasonably supportive and skillful in promoting a healthy relationship of this girl with her father. But, and then let's suppose adolescence occurs, puberty, the development of more of a sexual aspect to the, the girl's experience of things, and that's all navigated well. That would lead to secure attachment, all right? Ballpark, Estimates, that's maybe about half the population, depending on how you slice the pie. Then we're into insecure attachment. And this is material you know well. I'll just summarize it for people. Yeah, please. Two general forms of insecure attachment, what's called avoidant or anxious. There are other terms sometimes used. There's a third type of insecure attachment, which is pretty uncommon. It's sort of catastrophically disorganized. Avoidant attachment means keeping things at an optimal distance. It means staying connected through distancing, often as a result of parents who are dismissive, although sometimes it can develop because the child is just extremely introverted and or extremely sensitive interpersonally, and they just manage that by being quite distant. So in that particular case, personal relationships of any meaningful depth tend to be characterized by orbiting. Orbiting being a term in which the avoidantly attached person neither lands into full intimacy nor differentiates and individuates into full autonomy, but instead orbits the attachment figures, not getting too close, not getting too independent. 
The other form of of insecure attachment, anxious, tends to be characterized by a combination of moving in and moving away, often with a quality of a kind of clinging complaint. Mommy, mommy, I hate you, don't go. Daddy, daddy, I hate you, don't go. Things like that. Uh, There's a kind of ambivalence, basically, about it. There can be very subtle forms of this. There can be forms of this that are enacted differentially between the mother and the father. A child can be securely attached to a father, insecurely attached to a mother. Or kids can be, as adults then, securely attached with, let's say, friends, where the stakes are not too high. And yet, if it becomes a really significant, high-stakes, intimate relationship, maybe moving toward marriage, wow, then sometimes those old patterns you know, can develop. That's a great overview. And to kind of quickly sum it up, four attachment styles, more or less, secure, insecure, avoidant, insecure, anxious, and then this fourth style that's known as fearful, which is also called disorganized or fearful avoidant. And that's a combination of behaviors that can include both avoidance and anxiousness. And all of this, just to give a little additional background, and we're planning on doing a few more episodes oriented around attachment theory at some point, in particular, how to develop a more secure attachment style. That's right. But all of this comes from the work of John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. This was research that was done, I want to say in like the, I don't know, like 50 years ago, something like that ballpark. Do you happen to know that? More or less. Coming on the heels of that, like Mary Main Mm -hmm. at UC Berkeley and others. Mm -hmm. It's a very rich, rich area of literature. Yeah. And so there are a couple key points having to do with attachment theory and how we just like create these patterns inside of our lives. And the first point is that kids are both totally reliant on their caregivers and really egocentric. Kids don't really have a lot of sense of things outside of the self. That's something that develops as they age. So what that means is that when things happen to them, they assume that it is based on something that they did. This happened to me, and it is about me. When we know as we age that things happen to us for all kinds of reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with us, right? They just have to do with the weird inner world of the person who's interacting with us or our unique circumstances or whatever else. So think about this from the perspective of a young child, right? They're in a probably not perfectly healthy situation because how many people grow up in a perfectly healthy situation, right? There's all this weird stuff going on in the world around them, and their assumption is that that weird stuff is due to something about them. So if dad keeps on leaving, it is my fault. That's right. Whoa. I must not be lovable enough. Yeah, Yeah. must not be lovable enough. And you can just think about the ways in which that can create an internalized pattern of behavior that has some of the symptomology that you're describing. Well, I'm so glad you took it to the internal. So I want to talk a little bit about that. So- One, very often, again, cultural type and maybe having to do in part with the biological roots of male aggressiveness, fathers are often in the role of being the disciplinarian. Mm -hmm. And so they're the one who brings the punishment. Mom's the one you go to for comfort. And so then think about the kind of stuff that can get built up inside toward your father, who's the one who is stern maybe some spanking, especially when you were younger. He's the one who yells at you. He's the one who's kind of scary. Like, what does that do then when you become an adult? You know, what kind of understandable emotional memory, body memory, somatic memory, that's fearful around male authority figures just comes up and which is then maybe managed by an internal pressure 
to behave well or to always be on your toes or to be very careful not making a mistake or getting too close. Think of a different kind of example in which your dad is wonderful when he's around. He plays with you robustly. You know, fathers often with young kids will play these sort of high intensity, high energy games, like a lot of rough and tumble play, laughing, giggling, stuff like that. It's a lot of fun, potentially, to be with a neat dad, but then he's not around very much. And when he comes home, he's preoccupied. He wants to slip away and deal with emails or there's a lot on his mind. So then you're involved maybe with this feeling of both sadness that you're not important enough or you don't matter enough for him to make that effort to seek you. There's a line from the wonderful child psychiatrist, groundbreaking Daniel Winnicott, relating to the kind of peekaboo games and hide and seek games that children love to play. A joy to be hidden, a disaster not to be found. Mm. We want to be sought, right? Even just in the military, you know, the notion of leave no one behind. We want to be sought. We want to be pursued. So there's this longing to be sought and pursued. And then maybe sometimes behaviors to get the attention, attention-seeking behaviors, which underneath it all can feel both stressful and kind of annoying. Like, why do I have to be all pretty? Why do I have to dance through a bunch of hoops? Why do I have to always get A's to get your attention? I think that you're painting a common picture for people. You know, this idea of a dad that isn't abusive and is fun when they're around, but they perhaps aren't around as often as the kid would like them to be. And another common gendered dynamic that emerges among parents is, like you're saying, that the mom's around all the time. And therefore, the child's experience of them is more day-to-day. It's more expected, it's more blah, it's more just the minutia. And it could be a really loving relationship, but it's not exciting all of the time. And when dad happens to show up, things get exciting because dad is not always around. And that can also be a contributor to this certain kind of relationship that then again emerges later in life where the child really cares for the father, really desires more closeness and connection, but they never quite get as much as they wish that they could have. And then you see this common pattern where as they age, the child seeks to like get blood from a stone almost, like replicate the relationship, but change it just enough in just the right way where they wanted it to be different back then. And can we get that in the here and now? And that's a patterning that often leads to people selecting similar kinds of partners is one way that this can show up for people. Talking about the different kind of attachment styles and just really quickly giving some descriptions of other symptomology that might appear for people. For people who are more anxiously attached, where maybe that was your family of issues, this can lead to excessive possessiveness in your relationships, some Mm. clinging, some fears of being alone. Maybe you're somebody who requires a lot of reassurance and Just to name it, a common way to obtain reassurance is through sex. Then for people who are more avoidant in nature, there's more of that distrust and contempt that you were kind of referring to earlier, Dad. Maybe some discomfort with emotional closeness. Another way that this can show up for people is an assumption of disappointment. Mm. So those are kind of three big things that tend to show up for people. A little bit more anxious, a little bit more avoidant, and then this kind of desire to replicate the parental relationship, but to make it just a little bit different. There's an old line, you can never get enough of what you don't really want. Hmm. In other words, very often people are engaged in a kind of quest to repair the wound or to get what was missing when they were young. But to be able to repair it, they try to replicate 
the original setup with the kind of person who mm-hmm. was like their dad when they were young, which almost guarantees that they won't find satisfaction. They won't be able to fulfill the quest. They'll never get what they really long for from that person. And I think we've talked about that in a recent podcast episode, Doomed Quests, and yeah. becoming really much more mindful of, of all that. There's another dynamic I want to bring in, which is this one of the yearning for narcissistic supplies. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because very often as well, and again, in classic classic gender typing, the father very often has an instrumental role in society. And so it's the father who has the greatest credibility in bestowing acknowledgement. So when dad tells you, good job, right, on that paper or that baseball game, whoa, that really lands. In part because, as you point out, it's much less common, you know, People tend to habituate to what's common. Well, what mom says is common. It becomes more like the wallpaper. But what dad says, oh boy, really salient here. And so then there can be this feeling of this whipsaw combination of being elevated to the top of the pedestal occasionally and conditionally based on performance and based on the praise of the external person who's male, an adult male. And without that external praise, then boom, you're left with feeling, oh, I must not be that worthy because dad doesn't pay any attention to me. He's not giving me the praise that when I got it felt really, really good. That combination is really tough. It leads you even as an adult to like play the slot machine because there's variable reinforcement. Once in a while, it actually pays off. You do get the praise and then you feel, oh, great. But then you got to keep seeking it. And of course, the solution, as we talk about it, is very much to take in the good, to when you have the opportunity to experience something authentically healing or nourishing to you, slow down to metabolize it, slow down psychologically and neuropsychologically to want to weave it into the nets of memory based Mm. in underlying changes of neural structure and function. Mm. I want to talk more in just a second about the what to do part, because of course, that's probably why a lot of people are listening to this. But I do want to give just a little bit more context here, particularly historically, on the whole idea of daddy issues. Because when we began the conversation, I asked you, hey, what do you think about this? And you sort of had a moment where you're like, well, I don't really love this framing because it's sort of pejorative. It's got a lot of problems with it. And I just want to kind of speak to that for a second. Most of the time when this phrase is used in the culture and particularly on the internet, it's used as a pejorative. It's used to speak down, particularly to younger women. And there's this implication that daddy issues are a female problem. And I want to flag two things. The first thing that I want to flag is that it's really interesting that these issues, these daddy issues are positioned as a woman's problem when they arose in that woman most often based on the behavior of a man. And so we're essentially targeting women often for either what was done to them or the circumstances that they were in. As you said, Dad, when you gave that rundown of like the circumstances that lead to these kinds of issues, as opposed to anything that they've actually done in their own life or anything that they had real agency around. And that, for starters, is just like blatantly sexist and problematic. And so that's not so great. And then, second, historically, It's also just not the way that this stuff came about. 
the whole idea of like daddy issues, if you broaden it out, has its root in a lot of very male problems. And this includes everything like the Oedipal myth, where you're killing the father and sleeping with the mother. And a lot of Freud's work where he talked about something called the father complex, which was based on the work of Freud and Jung in the early 1900s. And this complex was actually specifically targeted at young men. And the Mm. idea that young men had these negative feelings like, like fear and defiance and distrust that they targeted their fathers with. That's why it's called the father complex. Then over time, it got kind of lumped in with the Oedipus complex and we were off to the races from there. And a lot of this comes out of like a very Victorian mentality where the issue is this dominating father figure and the struggle for power and dominance between the male child and the overbearing father. But then in a more modern context, what started to happen is the problem, yeah, the problem is still overbearing dads for sure, but for a while in there, particularly in like the 70s and 80s and 90s, there was a lot of cultural discourse around like there are no fathers in the home anymore and you know, absentee dads and deadbeat dads and all that kind of stuff. And that lack of a reliable father figure started getting targeted as like a primary problem. And then daddy issues kind of arose out of that. So that's a little summary of uh, the cultural context of all of this. Oh, yeah. So daddy issues, you know, as you pointed out, are not restricted to girls. We have the classic Oedipal story. And I think it's relevant that Freud's mother was closer to him in age than she was to her husband. And so Freud may have had an Oedipal complex, but maybe not everybody else did. That he projected onto the rest of the population. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So different things I've seen with boys. One is a situation in which, for various reasons, their father's not very helpful in terms of skillful gender role socialization. If you're a boy, you're going to look to your father for gender role modeling and learning ways of being that help you to be comfortable with same gender peers, which is your primary peer group up into adolescence and often through adolescence and beyond. So there could be something missing there that's consequential or something helpful there or something excessive, like you've got a dad who's just on your case to be able to throw a baseball or who's telling you and shaming you because you're starting to cry because you're sort of, you're sensitive. That then is something to think about. Uh, What did you, was something missing? Was your father unhelpful to you? And as an adult, can you then bring that to yourself? So that's one example. Another example is where the father is just mean. He's cruel. He's cold. He's sort of rejecting. And there you are as a boy and you're wanting a kind of closeness with a male figure, and it's really missing. So what do you do then? You might internalize that way of being and adopt it for yourself, or you might seek a father figure as an adult, as a mentor or a boss who would give you the kind of warmth that was missing for you when you were young. And that can go well or badly, right? And the internalization of that father who's cold and dismissive often goes badly because then you become cold and dismissive toward your own tender and sensitive interior. Mm. Yeah. And you carry that pattern with you. Yeah. I love how you're opening this up here. And if the way that daddy issues show up in the culture for women is often framed sexually and romantically in terms of like their preferences for the kinds of men that they end up being interested in, 
If you wanted to flip that on set a little bit, I think that you could totally look at the rise of, to be perfectly frank, like various alt-right content creators or the manosphere or the red pill world as the way that daddy issues show up for boys. People like the Andrew Tates of the world, whoever it might be, who are advocating for these very like strong father imagery, often targeting young men who that's did right. not have a healthy family life growing up. And so that's one way that those issues can show up for them. Yeah, in ways that even sometimes are extreme, in yeah. which they can blame women sure. for their own lack of romantic partners. The other thing I, I just want to bring up, so another kind of classic category of father issues, in a funny kind of way, has to do with something that's sort of murky, but really, I think, useful to kind of clarify, which is, can you, let's say as a male, male identified, can you claim your own power without killing your father? Mm, mm. Not literally. I like this. Yeah. Yeah. But metaphorically, imaginatively, can you be strong? You know, we live in a mythic world and, you know, in our imagination, we live in a mythos of sorts. And just think about Star Wars. Just think about the number of cultural stories and fables and myths yeah. that are the basically- The son against the father, the whole thing. Yeah. yeah, or the son has to break away from the father and maybe hopefully there's some sort of deathbed reconciliation. You know, Luke, I'm your father. <laughs> Something <laughs> like that before it all ends horribly. Yeah. yeah, but we're in that mode and it's almost as if that's the only alternative. You know, somehow the father has to die, you know, and that's classic. The father has to die for the son to take the throne. Yeah, right? for you to step into your own power, your own masculinity, whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah to step into the totally. fullness of your own authority and power. And so I, I think what's really interesting is to explore the notion of being able to individuate and be your own person in parallel with, mm, in mm -hmm. relationship with, but in parallel with, not behind. So you're, you don't have to compete with your father. You don't have to beat him. It's not about being better. It's not about, you're not stuck trying to struggle with his power and to prove your own power. You can see so many movies that are basically about a critical father and the son endlessly trying to prove that he's good enough and the father still being critical. Like the show Succession, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Is that Shakespearean or not? I mean, yeah, it's totally. so much about in the ways yeah. that are just kind of, to me, I can't watch it because I'm sensitive. <laughs> I'm like, I want people to be nice. What? It's just a bunch of mean people. The number like, of conversations we've had about either movies or books, Dad, where you're like, well, before I start reading, does it have a happy ending? <laughs> I'm just like, well, maybe it doesn't, but it's still a good book. And you're like, eh, no, I want the one with the happy ending. Thank you very much. Right. I like characters I like and respect yeah. who have a moral trajectory that ends well. Wow. Other than that, I'm easy to please. <laughs> <laughs> we have covered a lot of ground here, and I'm really glad that we've talked quite a bit about like the context of all of this and the ways yeah. these different issues can show up for people and all of that. I would like to turn the conversation here toward more of what people can do in the here and now if they're yeah. wrestling with the remnants of these various attachment wounds. Again, we're planning on doing a whole episode on secure attachment at some point in the near future. For people who struggle with these kinds of issues, do you have any general recommendations? Classically, and based on tons of research, which people will discover in the show notes, 
when they become a patron. <laughs> really plug in the Patreon, the Patreon for this one, Dad. I like I, that. Thanks. I usually don't do it. I should do it more because it's so phenomenal. Oh, in any case, thank you. One, forming what's called a coherent narrative. In other words, being able to move back and forth between the objective and the subjective in a kind of a balanced account that doesn't let anybody off the hook, but on the other hand, doesn't get attached to a sort of righteous, grievance-saturated complaint that can lead you to not see the whole picture of what was happening, including your impact. Often we look at adolescence as they can't help it. And I'm not letting parents off the hook. And I'm also very clear that adolescents have diminished capacity and therefore they have diminished responsibility. They're not yet adults. I get it. But on the other hand, they were one of the straws often that were stirring the drink you know, in their family of origin. And that's part of what is there is to take into account. Me included, I've been doing a lot of taking that into account as I keep healing from my own childhood, my own role in the matter, without blaming or shaming, but just looking at the impact. Okay, so one, that's really, really useful. Second, whatever was missing, look for today and take it in when you find it. That's, mm. I'd give it top three. Mental health method is to... Look for what was missing, what you mm -hmm. long for, what would be good to grow inside and experience it and internalize it in, in all kinds of ways. Just kind of really briefly, one thing that's been helpful for me because I didn't get it with my dad was a particular kind of valuing of me that was a little gendered, I would say, as someone who was athletic or, or capable and yeah. in sports and also in mountaineering situations, getting validation from male athletes who are better than I am or climbers who are better than I am. Like, pretty good, Rick, pretty good. <laughs> You're one of the best I've seen off the couch. That <laughs> went a long way. <laughs> that was meaningful for you. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. 
No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, another way to think about this in terms of like getting more of what you didn't have or looking for those reparative experiences, however you want to think about them, is we can actually kind of return to the model of attachment. Think about this because you could think about the four different attachment styles as almost this like two by two vector to to do some Rick stuff here. You know, you love yourself a matrix (laughs) dad, so I'm, I'm stealing it from you here. Where on one axis you have, how do you think of yourself? Do you regard yourself kind of positively or kind of negatively? And then how do you think of other people? Do you regard others as mostly kind of positively or mostly kind of negatively? If you tend to have a fairly positive way of thinking about yourself and a fairly positive way of thinking about other people, that tends to be associated with secure attachment. This is fantastic for us. Isn't this cool? I, I bumped into this. I've never this. heard this. This is original, bro. This is your new book, <laughs> The Fourth Quadrant. I, I, so I have to give credit for it. I bumped into this on the internet. I'm seeing it right there. The Fourth Quadrant. Oh, my God. Yeah, moving to secure attachment. Why not? So I, I cannot take original credit for this. I found it on the internet, but I thought it was really smart, so I am blatantly stealing it here. Okay. So anyways, but um, <laughs> if you had tend to have more of a positive model of other people or you think of them more positively, but you don't think very well of yourself, That's so that interesting. tends toward anxious attachment, right? Because I can trust the other, but I can't trust myself by myself. Mm. And then so what's avoidant? You think well of yourself, but you don't think very highly of other people, right? I can rely on myself, but I can't rely on others. And if you don't really think particularly well of either, well, that tends toward more fearful or disorganized attachment. So you've got that little two-by-two split, right, of these different ways of thinking and feeling in the world. And so if you're somebody who has either a lower model of yourself, but an okay model of other people, so anxious, or a lower model of others, but an okay model of yourself, that's more avoidant, you can really think about how to shore that up in the here and now, right? So for more anxious people with that low view of self, the task becomes developing increasingly feelings of worthiness just as you are, right? I can trust myself. I can be okay on my own. I don't need other people to validate my existence. I am worthy just as I am, all of that. And then for more avoidant people, 
It's about, you know, doing what you can to work on your view of others a little bit. Yes, other people can be trusted at least sometimes. Not all the times in all situations. That's probably unsafe. But hey, certain circumstances, certain people, I can really rely on them. And I can test that theory in a bunch of different ways. Not in the uh, kind of negative association of like being testing of other people, but just in small practical ways. Can I trust my partner to go to the grocery store and come home? And if they don't do it in a timely fashion, can I have a conversation about it with them and repair that experience with them and be really open and honest about my feelings with them? Because a lot of the times for people who are avoidant, that's one of the big problems. So what do you think about all of that, Dad? I still think you ought to write the fourth quadrant. (laughs) Even though it's not totally original. Yeah, it's a great idea. When I ran into it, I was just like mind blown. I wish I could give attribution, but I forget exactly where I found it. But Really, really liked that when I first saw it. I'll tell you another thing that's really reparative. And I'm going to go full geek here. If you take rats, okay, and I'm going to talk about animal research, ethical issues, their complications. Okay, great. So now let's talk about generations. Generation one, rats are sorted into two groups. And one group is highly stressed. One group is not highly stressed. And then the females in each of these groups have babies. Those babies grow up and those babies from mothers who were highly stressed have altered epigenetic, altered expression of genes inside their little rat brains. Yeah, we're doing some gene stuff here. I like this, Dad. Yeah, that regulates stress. So even though the second generation rats are growing up in uh, nice, nurturing, supportive, unstressed environments, they're still really vulnerable to stress because they acquired epigenetically some of the consequences of the stressful life of their mothers, now in the second generation, okay? Then in the second generation, those rats who had highly stressed mothers and who are vulnerable to stress have babies themselves. If they are then enabled or allowed to do normal rat mother stuff, like licking their little babies and cuddling with them and so forth, that pattern that they inherited epigenetically of being vulnerable to stress is actually healed through being nurturing themselves. Very, very cool research, yeah. Whoa, lots of implications. I think about sometimes uh, by, here's another kind of study that's a little different. If you take kids who are bullies, like a fifth grade bully, who often has been bullied themselves at home by an older sibling or often a father, unfortunately. So you take that fifth grade bully and you say, hey, you are now the partner of the second grade kid or first grade kid. And you're the, you're the buddy. And you just, you just get to do stuff together. It's really chill. Whatever you do, walk around the yard, you know, play checkers, bounce a ball. That bullying fifth grader will tend to become less bullying over time because they will have healed some of the underlying causes of that bullying by being nurturing themselves. Mm-hmm. So, so it's important to appreciate. I'm not talking about running on empty, exhausting yourself, particularly if you're a, a woman in a classic socialization where you're supposed to give, 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 and so forth. But it is actually really healing. It is reparative to give to others what was missing for you. Yeah. As a kid. Totally. 
and feel it as it flows through you on the way. And it's wonderful. And that's to me is quite wonderful in part because you have control over that, right? No matter what's actually missing in terms of what could be coming to you, you have some influence over what you can express outwardly into the world. Totally, totally. We heal in community. I mean, it sounds a little stereotypical or, you know, a, a little... It's not uh, your brand for us, <laughs> it's you not, know. It's not this my whole brand. Hallmark card thing you're doing here, it's not you. I don't know what's going on. You've been well, sniffing it, some oxytocin? It's, that, it's that mommy energy that I have, Dad. That's what's going that's, on that's here. True. I'm just, I'm just bringing true. my mommy parts more forward. But no, all right, so all jokes aside, I think it is really true, though. And it shows up over and over again as the value of social support. And what can you do now? And look, social support can be limited for people. There are a lot of people who don't have strong friend groups, who don't have strong family groups, who are in a community situation where they don't necessarily have access to a lot of people who feel like supportive and like-minded. And I really get that. And at the same time, there's it's just really hard to find a substitute for strong community and doing what we can in our lives to find ways to connect with other people and to use that as a mechanism, even deliberately, quite deliberately, as a way in to repairing these old interpersonal wounds that we might have. I can say that personally, like so many of my issues had to do with the impact of being in relationship with other kids growing up. Yeah. So this wasn't like a daddy issues thing necessarily, but it was a form of attachment wounding. I was securely attached with my parents, but I was probably a little bit less securely attached with other kids. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, and probably tended like kind of anxious with other kids, just thinking about my temperament in general. And it has been so reparative to consistently form stronger relationships with my peers as I have grown up and to... Again, engage in little experiments, as we sometimes talk about on the podcast. Can I be open in this way and not be destroyed? You know, can I be transparent with them in this way and have my emotions remain intact? And like, what can I get out of that experience in the here and now? And as you say over and over again, Dad, can I go through a deliberate process of looking at that experience I'm having that's good in the moment and going, hey, wow, I didn't explode. Wow, it worked out. Wow, it really did help me. And really make that part of the process so it's not just the kind of... The kind of I was talking with a friend about this recently, how so often what happens is when we don't get what we want, it's extremely painful. And when we do get what we want, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> negativity bias. Right? Like, oh my God, negativity bias in a nutshell, yeah. right? Like you win yeah. the trophy, you're like, oh, that was nice. Yeah. And you don't place and you're like, oh my God, devastated for months, you know? And so you just got to do something deliberately to correct that asymmetry. It's totally right. I think about, you know, watching sports these days and San Francisco 49ers are heading Your boy into Brock, the, yes. Yes, heading we're, into the playoffs. This will be published after whatever the results were of games about a month ago, but yes. You just think about it, the trope that's so common in sports where someone will say, who's a major success, it's, I'm going to put it, it's not that I love winning, it's that I hate losing, mm -hmm. right? It's not yeah. that I need to be the best, it's just that I hate second place. <laughs> Negativity bias right there. I want to name a fourth kind of repair, right? So we have forming a coherent narrative about what really happened, objective and subjective. Second, we have taking the good, internalized, you know, reparative experiences for what was missing. Okay, good. And we have also outflowing. Social support, extending love to other people. Yeah, yeah. enable others to form secure attachments mm -hmm. with you yep. and, and be that person. Okay, great. I want to add very briefly in passing, I do think it's also really helpful to appreciate who are you to others? Like here I am, male, tall, fatherly. I'm a warm, 
person in healthy ways. How does that land on someone who may not have had that kind of experience growing up? And realize that without any kind of weirdness about it, without being manipulative, what for you might be a minute and a half or a three-minute you know, email can actually really, really be helpful. And certainly that's been true for me. I've had people in my own life who interacted with me quite briefly in ways that were affirming or good seeing really, really had a beneficial impact. We can offer that to others. Yeah, totally. Love this. Okay, fourth. I was realizing, Forrest, I find that one very reparative act is to have an experience of being-to-being contact with your own parents. If you can have that while they're still alive, Mm -hmm. or if you can't have that while they're still alive or they're no longer alive, have it in your own imagination in ways that feel authentic to you. Even if only it was five seconds in a row in which the curtains opened, but you know, they covered over their eyes, and you could see the being behind the eyes who was present mm. and loving, actually. And so if your parents are still alive, it's a good idea to try to have that kind of experience of them if you haven't had it, period. And many people actually yeah. have not had that experience. I don't mean getting into some kind of new age staring contest or getting it being weird, but it's a feeling of, of meeting person to person in ways that almost transcend your roles and your genders, perhaps. You, you connect. Yeah, yeah. That kind of human relationality, almost irrespective of the fact that one person is a parent and one person is a yeah. child, can be really, really phenomenal. And of course, that's not available to everyone for a wide variety of reasons, But hey, if it's available, then I I totally think you're right. And even behind their personality, Mm. because, you know, often we get reactive around our parents' personality for all kinds of reasons. It's sort of looking past it, past it, and showing up as the adult child in a way that you're available as well for that kind of being-to-being contact. And if you can't have it in the real these days, Imagining it can be really helpful. I've definitely done that as well, where I just kind of looked past my parents' personalities, their, their shells, their, their outer shells, sometimes called their sleeves, and looked past the sleeve, past the shell, to the core of their, of their being, and even just imagined what I know to be true. It's not like I'm trying to trick myself into something that's really not true. I actually know it's true that there was an unconditional warmth of love for me through and through. And even just imagining that for a person can be really, really healing. If it's actually not true, and sometimes it's not true, then what can also be very healing is imagining a parent you never had, but imagining it in a very rich way, maybe in the form of others in your life who are that kind of person, potentially a teacher, a mentor, a grandparent, an uncle, aunt, and so forth, or just imagining it purely, and then dropping into the experience of seeing and feeling seen. Feeling seen and seeing as an experience that you really let into yourself. That can be remarkably healing. It's almost as if you can heal years of personality to personality struggle with a parent Mm. with one real experience of being to being contact. 
Mm. It doesn't disappear the emotional memories of that personality to personality struggle, but it somehow helps you to contextualize it or to stand outside of it. Yeah, I love that. I think that the four examples that you gave of things in general that people can do to work with really any kind of attachment issue, we're focusing on parental relationship issues, but man, there's a lot of stuff that can come up in life. And I think that those four recommendations that you gave are really generally applicable. In addition to the general, I do have some questions about the specific. So here's what I would like to do with you, Dad, if you're up for it. I'm going to return to some of the symptoms that I mentioned earlier, some specific things that a person might be dealing with related to any of these forms of attachment wounding, maybe specifically focusing on the issues that a person might have had with a parental figure, maybe specifically the person in the fatherly role. And I'm going to say some common symptoms And I would love it if you could give just a couple of quick recommendations for the person who might be experiencing them of things that they can do these days to improve them a little bit. And if you can manage it, I would love it if we could stick to just like two to three minutes per one. So we're going to move through these kind of briskly, even though we could frankly probably do an episode on each and every one of them. So does that sound good to you? You bet. And I am able to do drive time radio. Love it. Love it. We're going to we're going to get you practicing those CNN hits, dad. 90 seconds tight in out cut to commercial. <laughs> so, okay, let's get going. So, issue number 1. The person tends to struggle with fears of abandonment or being alone. They might be clingy, kind of possessive, jealous, or just feel uncomfortable when they're not in a relationship. So they are really looking for some kind of a particularly romantic relationship as a source of self-validation. One, taking the good of ordinary, typically pretty mild experiences of feeling seen, included, and sustained in relationship with other people. So you start building up the emotional memory of not being abandoned, and in ways that can actually give you increasing confidence that you won't be abandoned and also give you more and more of a built-up sense of refuge inside that you can turn to if other people do let you down. Mm. Second, choose wisely. Think about whether you're reenacting this setup from childhood of being with charming people who are gonna let you down or people whose idea of relationship is a mile wide but an inch deep and are gonna disappoint when push comes to shove. Think about who you're choosing. And then the last thing I'll just say, especially if you're looking for a romantic relationship, if they don't think you're pretty great within the first 20 to 40 minutes, they probably never will. And if they don't think you're pretty great for them, maybe you're just not their cup of tea. Okay, but if they don't think you're pretty great within the first 20 to 40 minutes, they're disqualified, they're DQ'd. And instead of trying to get blood from that stone, Take a breath, allow the grieving to pass through you, get in touch with your inner caring committee, you know, that internalization of experiences that have been good with people and look for somebody else. The top two qualifications for being in a relationship with somebody are that one, they're a basically kind person and two, they think you're awesome. (laughs) Hey, That's the top two. I think that's right. If they're not crossing those top two... (laughs) They are DQ'd. I mean, I can just think of, look back through my own relationship history. Uh, A a big chunk of my mid-20s was spent pursuing people who were like kind of into me, 
yeah. but not really into me. And I just wasted so much time trying to push a boulder up a hill that was that was never just never going to get to the top of that mountain. May I add one last one more thing? Yeah, please go ahead. Often people who are vulnerable to feeling abandoned and are anxious and kind of clingy is that they're always waiting for the for the shoe to drop. Yeah, to give them a reason to withdraw, or they feel like a, a fairly mild misattunement or not really understanding or clueless disengagement by the other person is the death knell in the relationship. And instead, my last piece of advice for that person is try to repair. In other words, if there is a misunderstanding or there's a breakdown, help yourself to understand the scale of it. Maybe it wasn't that big a deal. Actually, maybe it doesn't mean the end of the relationship. And maybe you can communicate with the other person to help them understand little things. And you can also make sure you're internalizing their actual care for you. I've known numerous situations where person A and person B, A is saying to B, you don't love me. And person B is saying, I actually do love you and I'm loving with you. And person says, oh, no, you're not. Well, actually, I can see that person B is loving. Person B is actually acting in loving ways. But person A is just committed to a complaint about person B, which will eventually drive B away and be the self-fulfilling kind of activity, unfortunately, that makes sure that A never gets what they really need. So try to repair. Try to repair. If you can't repair, then they're not qualified. But try to repair. Great. So that was issue one, uh, which we spent a little bit of time with, but a lot of that was driven by me, so I'll take credit for that one. Okay, so issue number two. The person needs a lot of reassurance from others. Mm -hmm. They're very externally referenced, and they require a lot of outside feedback to build up their own self-worth. And one example of this could be somebody who tends to quickly move towards sex in their relationships and uses sex as a tool to feel loved or worthy as they are. What do you think? One trick pony over here, taking the good of (laughs) when you actually are acknowledged when those social supplies, the narcissistic supplies of praise or joining or like-mindedness or esteem, you know, making you special or being impressed by you. When that comes your way, slow it down and take it in. And I think it's especially important to look for forms of healthy approval that are not contingent on your sexuality. They're about you as an overall being, mm-hmm. not whether you're attractive, not whether you're good and bad, but just simply you as an overall being. And when it comes your way, take it in. As someone who did that practice a lot, it can be helpful sometimes to explain to your friends why you're this way <laughs> and <laughs> why you're asking a follow-up question. So you liked what I said at work. What did you like about it? right? To kind of explain and do your side of it though. Make sure you're taking in the good, but sometimes you can kind of explain to others what's going on. And then to flip it around, what if you're with someone who needs a lot of reassurance? Mm -hmm. And very often what people do is they withdraw from that pull for support, that pull for reassurance, when in fact that just creates an even greater hunger and insecurity related to reassurance. What's more effective is to authentically deliver reassurance and other forms of approval, love, you know, commitment, loyalty, and so forth to that person and ask them to be sure to internalize it so that you don't get exhausted and you're not in this kind of situation where they're like a vampire always needing to consume who never fundamentally gets fed. 
Great. And a fantastic thing to track, both in terms of how other people speak to us and how we speak to other people, is how often you give a comment, particularly to whatever category of person that it is that you are attracted to, about something other than their physical appearance or the way that they look, other than a superficial comment. Because it can really you know, reveal some things if you have a friend who only ever compliments you on your appearance or things like that, because that can be a very superficial form of validation and it can fill up something sometimes for people that's already full when they have this other bucket over here that is in desperate need of filling. And then you have people who are the other way around. For a long time, I got complimented frequently for all of these traits and absolutely none of them were related to how I looked or how I moved through the world or how skillful I was in my relationships with other people. And uh, that for me was a real hole that took some time to get filled. And mm-hmm. I had to kind of go out of my way to deliberately fill it in ways that you're describing that. Good. All right. Great. What's another one? Boom, issue boom. number three. Issue number three, drive time radio, like you were saying. Uh, the person has big issues with trust and related to that, emotional vulnerability in particular. So this could be a unwillingness to be emotionally open with others, excessive fears of being cheated on or otherwise Mm. betrayed that go beyond what you would think of as being understandable, or otherwise somebody who just starts to feel very uncomfortable when the rubber is meeting the road of like deep emotional connection. Mm. Okay, great. So first off, validate legitimate mistrust. Sometimes that little bell starts ringing and we don't listen to it, but we actually really should, so that. Second, appreciate the fact that you actually are vigilant and you are clear-seeing and you can stick up for yourself. In other words, in effect, join with your own defenses. Validate Mm. your own capacity to be like, I don't know, the turtle or some sea creature that can withdraw inside your bulletproof shell, mm-hmm. you know, in one half of a second if you need to. Paradoxically, then, you can afford to be more open. So that's actually a really useful, weird kind of counterintuitive yeah. trick. If you trust your ability to take a step back, you can be more comfortable taking a step forward. Totally. Excellent. Also, when you are with people who are reliable, which is the foundation of trust, if they are reliable in everyday kinds of ways, Take that in and notice what comes up for you about a difficulty in internalizing that you're with people who are reasonably reliable. Because maybe you're afraid that if you actually let in that experience, you'll lower your guard and get fooled again and be betrayed. So still, even though that's an understandable reaction, it gets in the way of the internalization of what you really need to do. Next, be Realistic in your expectations of others and explicit, right? What for you is a foundation of trust? And what are the actual agreements? Very often what people do is they they think they're in a frame of agreement with other people, but the other people don't think that way at all. Didn't really realize that it was a big deal to show up on time or like what's five minutes? And yet maybe that's a big, big deal for a particular person. Or what does it mean? You know, I think about romantic relationships You know, there you are, you're sitting with your romantic partner at a dinner table and somebody attractive walks across the room and your eyes flicker over to that person for 1.7 seconds and then come back. Huh. I mean, is that really a breach of fidelity in your romantic Mm. relationship? What is flirting, actually? And, you know, you really try to pin that down. What does that actually mean? And I would say there, if we're in a partnership, 
with someone who's more insecure about certain things. So A and B. A is more insecure. They are wanting more reassurance from B, or they tend to be mistrusting what B's doing. And B could understandably feel that a fair amount of that is way over the top. It's too controlling. It's unreasonable. It's annoying. But if B gets reactive about that, that's going to make A feel even less trusting and could actually lead ultimately to the relationship ending. Alternately, B could sort out, okay, what am I fundamentally willing to do? Right? Not because I think it's reasonable, but because I love my partner. I have compassion for my partner. I understand where this trust stuff comes from. They had a father who was disappointing and betraying and maybe seductive and then withdrawing. It was complicated. You know, I get it. You see what I'm saying? And then if you're A, it's actually skillful sometimes as well to say, look, I'm not trying to argue that what I'm wanting is reasonable. I'm not in the frame of reasonable, unreasonable, should or shouldn't. I'm just saying at a human level, I'm this way. This is what I need right now. I am this way. It would help me even to heal being this way. If you would be extra careful when we're in company, especially, let's say, if we're talking with a woman who's attractive and let's say A's a woman, B's a man, do me a favor, stand a little closer to me. Put your arm around me for its own sake, just because I'm asking for it, not because it's reasonable or because I think you're a bad guy who's going to sleep with her and cheat on me. Just because it helps me out. Yeah. Helps me out. And then it's a lot cleaner and easier to get what you need from others. And you're having a different kind of conversation. You've changed the conversation from like an objective conversation to a subjective conversation. Exactly like you're saying, Dad. Like, I'm not making an objective claim about this. I'm just saying that for me, this is really helpful. And a lot of the time, people are afraid to ask because they're afraid of what the answer is going to be. So they just never ask. And so they kind of keep on having this idea inside of their head, this almost uh, fantastical or kind of dreamlike notion of what the agreements are, but they've never actually been established in a clear and coherent way because there's so much fear connected to, well, what if they say no? Yes. And sometimes people say no. I know. And And then you got to deal with it. Yeah. And part of it too is that we are observing people. I mean, trust is based on accurate appraisal of predictions and having fairly good predictions and expectations. A key variable here is to what extent do we foreground other people inside our own minds or flip it around? To what extent do other people foreground us inside their minds and Mm -hmm. make us matter or take us into account? I mean, it's stunning how often. What would cool down other people is completely doable when you really boil it down. It's often stunningly easy to give them. And so then the real question is no longer, oh my gosh, it's such a huge ask. No, it's that that other person is just not willing to be influenced by you. They're just not willing to foreground you. And then that becomes the real issue in the relationship. And Mm. that really becomes the real conversation that's needed to have. And then you sort it out. And sometimes what happens is be budges, good. Flip around the other way, you start to observe someone. Maybe you like them a lot. Maybe you're really attracted to them. Maybe you have a child with them. And yet you can just see that inside their own mind, they're just not prepared to give an inch. Or maybe they'll give an inch, but they won't give two inches inside their mind because they're just not willing to give you that much room in their mind or that much power in their mind, that much standing in their mind. 
And then that becomes a real issue in the relationship. But being able to see it clearly is fundamental, including in terms of what you can actually trust. Great. Well, I just have one more of these to add, but it's a bit of a doozy. And again, we could spend several episodes on this. Issue number four, the person tends to seek out one usually problematic kind of partner over and over again. They might say that they're open to different types of people, but in practice, most of their partners tend to have similar characteristics or tendencies that lead to similar problems in the relationship. A extreme example of this could be somebody who consistently makes excuses for or tries to fix their abusive or otherwise problematic partner. So that's one version, but this could also show up a lot of different ways. What do you think? Well, a couple things. One is to ask yourself, what is it I'm actually seeking as an experience? This is a point that you and I really emphasized in our book, Resilient. In other words, the form that you're going after, an older figure, a physically highly attractive person, someone who is also passionate about rock climbing and adventure sports, Mm -hmm. whatever it might be. Someone who has a little bit of edge. They feel a little dangerous, you know, whatever it is. Okay, that's right, that's right, that's right. So that's a form. That's a means to an end of a certain experience. What's the experience you're seeking? And A, ask yourself how you could find that experience in safer packages, Mm. more reliable packages out there in the world, or B, how you could start to give yourself more and more of that experience almost on your own. How could you find that inside yourself, that feeling of adventure and energy and juiciness, that feeling of sexuality, that feeling of having status or and confidence in yourself in society that you might get by hanging out with a person who's quite wealthy, for example. That's useful. The second thing that I find really useful, and this is where I'm drawing on, you know, 50 years now roughly of working with people, the clock is ticking every day. I think sometimes we put up with behaviors on our part because we're just not prepared to recognize that the clock is ticking. Mm. Think about the saying from sailing that you have all the time in the world until you have no time at all. And unfortunately, people will clock year after year not really helping themselves to have what they long for. And then finally, they have no time at all. Give yourself one more shot at the kind of person that you think you have to have to have. And then if you don't have that going well by a certain date, like the end of the year, nine months from now, or you know, by the summertime, decide for yourself, if I don't have it by then, I'm going to take a different road. I'm going to walk down a different road. I'm going to implement the advice of my friends. <laughs> you know, I'm going to do what makes sense to me. And I'm going to go in a different direction. And I'm going to stop chasing the hit, the fix, the cheese that's just not going to be found down that tunnel. What can be helpful for people here is to do some investigation of what the assumptions you're making are about the way that a relationship looks. Because a lot of the time, like you were talking about much earlier in our conversation, Dad, at the very beginning of it, if I'm remembering correctly, so we're just kind of coming full circle here, where Attachment issues arise because we have a model of relationship. We learned a model. We learned a kind of template when we were really young of what a relationship looks like. Maybe we were modeling it off of our relationship with our father. Maybe we're modeling it off of the ways that we saw our parents interact with each other. 
And we've just internalized those assumptions in a very deep kind of way. So it's very helpful to go back and to really ask ourselves deliberately, wait, what are my assumptions? What are the processes that are running underneath the surface here for me? Do I think that a if I'm approaching this from the perspective of myself, of a man who is attracted to women, do I think that a partner needs to look a certain kind of way for them to be eligible for my affection? Is that just an assumption that I have? Do you think that a partner needs to be a certain height, a certain age, make a certain amount of money, all of these different things? Just like be honest with yourself about it. Like you got to start with honesty because you're not going to get anywhere until you're actually honest with yourself about what your real preferences and desires are. And until you can do that, I think it's very, very difficult to refresh these patterns because we're just not being authentic with ourselves about what we're really pursuing out in the world. And then we can have a moment where we take a step back and we go, oh, I actually am pursuing this thing over and over again. And here's kind of why I'm doing that. And based on that new level of insight, we can move ourselves toward a different outcome. But we need that insight first, I think, a lot of the time. That's deeply wise. Hmm. And if we could, in this bonus round here, I wonder if we could each personalize it a little bit. Just kind of reflecting a little bit, give me a question. You know, what have I done to help you have a good relationship with me? Just kind of reflecting on that as an adult. I'm asking myself that. It's an inner reflection. Oh, okay. Yeah. And, you know, an inner reflection maybe for you is what have you done to help me have a good relationship with you, but especially to help yourself, to help yourself, you know, have a good relationship. And that's really worth asking. And even for people listening, what have you tried? That's another thing that we could really talk about here, which we didn't, which is what efforts have you made, you the listener, with your own parents, let's say, and how did that go? And mm. what have you learned from those kind of efforts? Maybe we'll get some grab bag questions about this. What have you learned from those kind of efforts in terms of what has gone well and what has been frustrating and disappointing, both in terms of what your parents' lack of response or unskillful response was, and in terms perhaps of what you just didn't know what to do next after they did what they did, after you made some effort to, to repair things with them. That could be really a worthy topic. Mm. Yeah, and I think probably a, a way to work on some longstanding issues sometimes to just do more of that situational analysis like we were kind of doing during the episode, separating the subjective and the objective like you said a number of times, Dad, to kind of piece apart what happened, how it might be affecting you in the here and now, and how that could understandably lead to certain kinds of tendencies inside of your relationship. And then when you see it that way, it can sometimes create the space to be a little bit kinder, a little bit more compassionate to yourself about your own tendencies. And that like joining with the vulnerable parts can be a great way to move into changing it in some kind of a lasting way. Like we normally need to and at least in my experience, we normally need to come into that kind of soft contact with ourselves before we're able to change those things. Because when those parts feel like we're opposed to them, yeah. they can get quite entrenched, quite difficult to shift, at least in my own experience. Yeah. But I think that's a great place to end today's conversation, unless you have something else that you'd like to throw in here at the end, Dad. Yeah. Well, for those, for those of you who have adult children, I can say two things on reflection are there for me. One is cop to your stuff. 
as fast as you can, while sometimes only privately seeing the whole of the situation, big picture. Inside of which, cop to your stuff, my, like my own parents, they were of a generation in which it was just unthinkable to acknowledge their own faults or excesses or unskillfulness or personal issues as parents. It was just not in the category. Wasn't what was done. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it's been really important to do that. And and what the adult child does with that is kind of out of your hands, but at least the part that you can do is to be really clean yourself and go to the maximum on acknowledging your part while you know also seeing yourself in a larger system, multiple factors, including your co-parent, et cetera, et cetera. Second thing is to be willing to connect with your adult child in that being-to-being way when it's there and available while remembering that most of the time you're never not their parent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that's been important for me to do is to keep my dad hat on. You know, one of the things I learned as a therapist is that you always need to keep your therapist hat on with your clients, even if you run into them in the supermarket. And maybe you're there in your Bermuda shorts and you haven't shaved and your hair's a mess and all the rest. But you know, you keep your therapist hat on. People get into trouble when they take that therapist hat off. And similarly, I think it's been useful to just kind of keep my dad hat on, you know, even as you and I do stuff. Today, I had a great time talking with Rick about daddy issues. A somewhat more accurate and less pejorative way to refer to daddy issues is as a form of attachment wounding. We all have things that we want from our parental figures. And when our relationship with one of those primary attachment figures is complicated, non-existent, difficult, or otherwise unhealthy, it's common for us to port some of those issues that happened back then into our adult relationships in the here and now. So that's what we talked about today, what daddy issues are, where they come from, and what we can do about them. And a key point in the early part of the conversation is that daddy issues come from a desire we all have for a healthy, positive relationship with a reliable, strong caregiver. And a really key point here is that it's not a person's fault if they have daddy issues or really any other kind of issue. Daddy issues are often used as a phrase to refer pejoratively to young women in particular. And the reality is that any person of any gender identity can have any kind of issue related to any kind of attachment figure. So just narrowly focusing on this one thing and particularly blaming women for something that men do to them is pretty sexist, and it's just not a great way to think about this stuff altogether. We then talked for a while about what these different kinds of issues can look like for people in adulthood, and the reality is that daddy issues are not a uh, a diagnosis that a clinician would ever give somebody, in part because they are just this big and somewhat vague category of tendencies That could include everything from consistently seeking out a particular kind of problematic romantic partner to issues around self-worth or anxiety or trust and a bunch of other stuff in addition to that. Because again, the difficulties that people have with their primary attachment figures when they're growing up are really varied. And these varied issues can lead to a lot of different kinds of problems in adulthood. 
So to try to understand things a little bit better, we turned the conversation toward attachment theory broadly. And there are four different types of attachment styles that people have. The first is secure. You have a relatively high appraisal of yourself, not irrationally high, but you know, you feel like you can basically trust yourself. And you have a relatively high appraisal of other people. Then you have avoidant. You have a relatively high appraisal of yourself and a relatively low appraisal of others. Then anxious, low appraisal of self, high appraisal of others. And then finally, what's sometimes known as fearful or disorganized attachment, where you don't have a very high appraisal of either yourself or of other people. And these four different forms of attachment are a combination of nature and nurture. It seems like people pop out with a bit of an internal tendency toward one type or another. I can think of myself here that I'm definitely on the anxious side of the spectrum in terms of my own tendencies. And then in addition to those innate tendencies, a lot of things happen to us that could lead to different kinds of outcomes. Somebody who has a parental figure who is harshly punishing is probably going to emerge into adulthood with a separate set of issues from somebody who has a parental figure who is nurturant, supportive, and really present and exciting and fun and playful, but isn't around very often. And this recognition of the fact that different people are going to have different problems that come from different situations got us into a whole conversation about context, the ways in which daddy issues of various kinds can emerge for people, the broader cultural forces that are at play that often lead to these issues, and just in general, thinking about this whole territory a bit more holistically, which can also help us take a look at our unique issues and just get some separation and some space around them where we become a bit less self-punishing for the ways in which we are. And then when that punishment goes down, weirdly, often, we become so much more agent about our behavior because it's like there's this part of ourselves that we've just been hitting with a hammer for years that finally has a little bit of room to breathe. And you invite that part to the table in a different kind of way. And we can almost invite that part to the table and go like, hey, what do you really need in order to not show up in these more problematic ways? And that was around the time that I asked Rick what some general recommendations were that he had for people who deal with different kinds of attachment issues. And he highlighted four things that I thought were really great. The first was forming a coherent narrative of childhood, being able to take a step back, separate the subjective from the objective, and really appreciate both what the real circumstances were and also how they landed on you. Then second, improve your ability to take in the good. It is natural for us to have a negativity bias. It is natural for us to just feel kind of okay when a good thing happens and to be devastated when a bad thing happens. But hey, we have to really go out of our way to push back on that tendency. So if you're a more anxious person, it's really important for you to go out of your way to internalize experiences of being worthy just as you are, not needing to rely on others, and being able to take care of yourself. If you're an avoidant person, really internalizing those times when people really do show up for you in positive ways, or where you are able to trust somebody else, so you could be emotionally vulnerable with others without being totally devastated by it. Then third big recommendation, social support. Maybe a more uh, romantic way of putting this would be finding ways to love yourself through loving others. And this was the example that Rick gave about the different generations of rats or mice, I forget which one it was, where you had parents who were dysregulated or in a painful environment, and even if their children 
were brought up in a safe environment, they also became dysregulated or it became easier for them to get stressed out. But then if those animals were able to have children of their own and nurture them, a lot of their own problems got solved. They became less sensitized to stress over time. And just in general, I think this makes a really important point that there's no substitute for community of some kind, and it's not always easy to find one, but wow, it is so powerful when you do. And then the final piece of general advice that Rick gave was seeing the being behind the eyes, being able to connect with a person beyond their role in your life. And a particularly important figure to do this with is often our parental figures or our attachment figures more broadly. And often we don't have the opportunity to do this in real life. Maybe those parental figures are not available. Maybe they've passed away. Maybe we don't have a healthy relationship with them that would allow us to move into that kind of connection. Maybe you're a parent and you don't have a healthy relationship with your child that allows you to connect with them. Whatever it is, even if that real relationship isn't available to us, we can still imagine it. We can still go through a practice deliberately inside of ourselves where we think of the person. We try to relate to them in that more being-to-being way rather than getting caught up in the problems of their personality. And this might sound a little out there, but even as like a very practical and secular person, the little moments that I've had where it's felt like I was able to do this were really powerful for me. And so, you know, if you've got any access to it at all, I would really recommend it as a kind of intervention. Finally, we close the episode with Rick giving a couple of specific examples of what people can do to deal with some common symptoms that come up as a result of different kinds of attachment wounds. I've been really looking forward to doing this one for a while because I think that it's something that, for starters, it's so popular as a term online in particular and just like in pop culture generally. And I also think that it's really misunderstood, and it's misunderstood in ways that are actually really damaging for people because these are universal issues. These are not problems that like just women have or just men have. And by universalizing them, we can make them more human and we can see other people for their wholeness rather than for just this little aspect of who they are. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it wherever you're listening to it now on. Hey, if you're listening to it on audio and you would like to watch the video, you can also find me on YouTube. And if you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And as Rick said a couple of times throughout the episode, you'll get a bunch of bonuses if you subscribe there. Things like transcripts and expanded show notes and ad-free versions of the episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.